0: One of the huge discoveries that we've made over the last 30 years is that as far as planets go, our own solar system is not a rarity at all. In fact, thanks to the stellar wobble method, the transit method, direct imaging, and largely NASA's Kepler and TESS missions, we've learned that not only is our solar system not so much of a cosmic rarity or oddity, but that most stars out there in the universe have their own planetary systems around them. Planets come in a wide variety of sizes and masses, with some being rocky and Earth-sized or smaller, some being gas giant worlds, and many of the worlds actually coming in this in-between phase. But how many stars actually have planets, and how, when they're forming, do these early protostellar systems go about making their planets? From 1990 until the present day, this went from a speculative question that we didn't quite know the answer to, to a rich field of study where we're learning more and more with each new paper that comes out. How do stars make planets in the universe? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. You might think, okay, if I want to make planets, all I need to do is take the same cloud of gas that will form any star and let it gravitate. The star will irradiate that material, gravitation will race against it, and it'll work to collapse, and bam, you'll wind up with planets. But as it turns out, the story's a little more complex than that. And here to help us untangle fact from fiction and to confront our intuition with what we actually learn from examining the universe, I'm so pleased to welcome Camber Schwartz to the program. Camber, is a PhD scientist. She got her PhD from the University of Michigan. She was a NASA postdoctoral Sagan fellow. And now she has another postdoc. She's a research associate at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics at Heidelberg. Camber, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Ethan. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. You know, I was kind of blown away when I started thinking about what I thought would be the simplest picture of planet formation, which is, hey, let's take a cloud of gas, let's allow it to collapse under its own gravity, and, you know, maybe in the center of this cloud we'll get a protostar that'll start radiating away, it'll initiate fusion in its core, and it'll become a full-fledged star. And all you really have to do is wait for the surrounding material to collapse down and gravitate, and you'll wind up with planets. But not every star is capable of forming planets around it. In fact, in the early universe, when we were making stars for the first time, practically no stars had planets at all. And it may have even taken billions upon billions of years for the first large populations of planets to even begin forming in the universe. Um, Why is that the case? Why have we changed our tune from the idea that all stars have planets to mm, maybe stars need to have a special set of properties before they can begin forming planets?
1: So for the earliest stars, it's true that they probably did not have planets around them. And To understand why that is, we first have to ask ourselves the question, what is a planet and how is a planet different than a star? So most stars are made up of primarily hydrogen and helium, which there was plenty of in the early universe. However, if you look at the Earth, we actually have very little hydrogen or helium uh, as part of the Earth's composition. Instead, we have things like carbon, and nitrogen, and silicate, and iron. And these elements did not exist in the early universe. So in order to make large bodies composed of these elements, we had to wait for those elements to be synthesized inside of the stars.
0: Well, that's that's a pretty good reason, right? So you need many generations of stars to live and die to build up these heavy elements to create planets like the ones we find in our own backyard. Let me ask you, if you were to take something that was the size of Earth or the mass of Earth, but instead of being made out of all of the elements that Earth is made out of, we just assembled it out of hydrogen and helium, what would happen? Would we have a stable planet, or would the star, the galaxy, other forces in the universe, would they just blow it all away?
1: That's a good question. So the that would depend on where we place that ball of hydrogen and helium. So if it was close to a star, like the sun, then the gravity of that star would probably pull on that mass of hydrogen and helium. And unless it had some sort of angular momentum, which will be important later, um, that would keep it from falling into the star, it would just fall in and become part of the star. Um, So if it was in a relatively quiet area of space where there weren't any other... Uh, strong gravitational forces working it, then it would probably just sit there and be a blob, a very boring, cold blob.
0: Well, that's interesting. So you're saying if I took a ball of hydrogen and helium, something I might think about forming a star out of, but I only had like an Earth masses worth of it. If I put this out into space, you know, somewhere around you know, many times the distance from the Sun to, say, Neptune, Um, that the solar radiation wouldn't mess with it, the gravitational forces from other things wouldn't mess with it substantially, and it would probably just hang out there in a gravitationally bound ball. But if I took something like that same object, an Earth mass collection of hydrogen and helium, and I put it into orbit around a star... At roughly the location where Earth is, um, wouldn't there be things like ultraviolet radiation and solar wind particles that smashed into it? And wouldn't I have to worry about slowly over time that those collisions from radiation and from particles just slowly stripping atom by atom? the entire hydrogen and helium planet mass system away? Would it would it literally blow this collection of gas back out into interstellar space?
1: Yeah, it would. Um, and that is actually what we think happens to a large fraction of the material that uh, collapses along with the star when it first forms. But because of its angular momentum does not immediately fall into the star. So another way of saying that would be the protoplanetary disks of material around young stars. We think that a lot of that material ultimately does not form planets, but instead is going to be stripped away by the winds and the radiation from the central star and go back into the interstellar
0: medium. Wow. So let me, let me cook up a hypothetical for you. Here in our galaxy, we have all sorts of active star forming regions, largely along the spiral arms in the disk of our galaxy. But we have these hotbeds, these stellar nurseries that are actively forming new stars right now. And in many of these locations, especially in the plane of the galaxy, we're dealing with locations that have Fractions of heavy elements that are similar to what we find in our own sun. We're not looking at things with like just 1% or even just 10% of the heavy elements we have, but something like roughly the same fraction, uh, where, you know, maybe instead of like the universe was born with about 75% hydrogen, 25% helium by mass and about one ten millionth of a percent of everything else combined. Now we're talking about like, yeah, we've got like one to 2% of everything else combined, oxygen, carbon, Nitrogen, silicon, etc. cetera, um, not just hydrogen and helium anymore. So if I look in the Orion Nebula or the Carina Nebula or the Omega Nebula or the Eagle Nebula or any of these star-forming regions that exist in our own galaxy, I can see, wow— these are big, big collections of matter. We're talking many, many thousands of times the mass of our entire solar system, uh, possibly even up to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times the mass. Um, But when we start forming stars, I I used to think, oh, well, when you start forming stars, like in our solar system, 99.8% of the mass of our solar system is in our parent star, the sun. And so I thought something similar would happen in these star-forming regions, but it turns out it doesn't. That if I take the whole mass of the star-forming region, of all the gas in there, and then I were to come back a few tens of millions of years later when the gas has formed stars, and the stars have begun radiating away, initiated fusion, and all that excess gas is not there anymore, it turns out that only something like less than 10% of the mass of that initial gas winds up in new stars so there's this there's got to be this complex story going on of on one hand gravitation is working to grow and form these little clumps that grow and grow over time and then i have say what I call a triaxial ellipsoid, just whatever initial distribution of matter I have around one of these clumps, it's going to start collapsing gravitationally in all three dimensions. And one dimension, whatever the shortest is, is going to get there first, and I'll form what I call a pancake or a disk around this protostar or set of protostars. But then the radiation turns on, and fusion initiates, and solar wind starts, and and I've got all this radiation coming from the stars and star clusters that have formed from the surrounding space, um, and so there's sort of this race where in these disks – I'm trying to form planets and to grow them gravitationally, and in the surrounding regions, I'm trying to collapse this gas and form new stars and stellar systems. But I've also got this radiation from the stars and the solar particles from the stars and winds and all of these complex things. I feel like a race is going on where gravity is racing to collapse things down and form massive collapsed bound objects, and all the energy inputs from the surrounding areas are working to blow all of this stuff away and bring an end to star formation and planet formation. Um, This seems like a really complicated environment and a really complex set of conditions, and yet... It's not unsolvable. In fact, this is what you and people in your field work on, is how does star formation and planet formation proceed in environments like this? What are the things that you think about when you think about these new environments, when you think about the formation of stars and the formation of planets around those stars?
1: So I think the two main things that i think about are one scales so how long does it take for your protostellar core to collapse into a protostar how long does it take for a planet to form how long does it take for the winds or the radiation pressure from your central star or from the surrounding environment to strip away material and uh, disperse your uh, disk of material that is feeding your star and your planet. Um, So that's all time. And then the second question that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, how much stuff is in these systems, which sounds like a really basic question and something that we should know. Like you said, you look at, say, the Orion Nebula and you see all this glowing gas and dust and you can see the stuff. So surely you should be able to know how much of it there is. But it turns out that measuring things in space when they're too far away for you to go and put them on a little scale is really difficult. So how much material is available for planets to form? How quickly is that material lost to those uh little baby protoplanets either because it's stripped away uh by these forces that we've been talking about or because it is uh accreted into the central star. So those are my two main questions I think. How long and how much
0: I mean, those are good questions. Um, Unfortunately for me, and maybe you can help out here, I can only really think of two ways to go about answering these questions. And one is uh, to take your powerful telescopes and instruments um, from radio wavelengths all the way up through uh, infrared, visible, and even into ultraviolet and x-rays and sort of say, okay, if I look at these environments where new stars are forming, where planets are forming around them, where you have star-forming regions, um, I can do things like do emission spectroscopy and absorption spectroscopy, and I can calculate what fractions of various wavelengths of light are being blocked. Um, and so observationally, I can try and determine what is this made out of and how much stuff is there of what I'm seeing. And the other thing I can do is I can write simulations. I can perform simulations where I say, okay, I think I know how proto-stars work, and I think I know how they evolve as they become full-fledged stars. I think I know what the contributions are from the surrounding environment, and I think I understand gravitation, radiation, and escape velocity and the interplay of these things. And so I can do simulations of planet forming systems um, and sort of say, okay, uh, what are the types of things I end up with based on various initial conditions? Um, That seems like a good way to go about it. It seems like a good set of ways to begin approaching the problem. But I also fear that with those tools in a toolkit, you'll really only be scratching the surface of what's possible, and doing that kind of work might not get you a very accurate answer, if that's all you know.
1: Yeah, you're right that those are the two main ways that we try to answer these questions. Um, And... You're also right that that's actually not that much information compared to all of reality. So for let's do the simulations first. So there have been several generations of scientists now who have run simulations of star formation, how a large cloud will collapse and form a cluster of stars. Um, people have gone down to look at how an individual um, clump of material is going to collapse and form a star surrounded by a disk of material, and then how that disk of material is going to go on and form planets and have made predictions about how your planetary systems and your stellar systems should look. And for a long time... These models were really focused on giving us planetary systems that looked like the solar system, where we have a handful of small rocky planets at uh, small radii, so small distances to the sun, and then at larger distances, we have these very large gaseous planets. And there were a couple groups who had, had figured this out, like they could make the solar system. And then we started detecting exoplanets a lot of exoplanetary systems look nothing like what this model or these models have been predicting in that they didn't look like the, the solar system. And so there was something there that we were missing. Another problem was the time scales in these models. Oftentimes we would find that uh, the models would predict that your material that forms the planets, the protoplanetary disks, should only last for, say, a fraction of a million years. And yet we would go out and we would look at these objects with our telescopes and we would find protoplanetary disks that were several million years old. So one, two, ten in a couple of cases, and we couldn't explain how that material was still there because our model said it should be gone by now and so at that point you have to go back to your initial assumptions so okay we think we understand how gravity works did we forget something else is there some sort of radiation that's important um the classic example is yes but what about magnetic fields what do those do did we initialize the physical conditions correctly? Did the cloud have a realistic angular momentum? Uh, did it have a realistic shape? Or did we assume that it was a perfect sphere? How do those things change the results? And in the modeling of dynamics, which I will say as a caveat is not my exact area of expertise. That's really the realm that we're in right now is trying to understand which sort of second-order processes after gravity are important. And is there a simple way to explain the variation of planetary
0: systems that we see? So I I think those are a really important set of considerations because gravity is the obvious one, right? You, you gravitate. And gravitation is one of those overdogger races, right? Where when someone starts winning the gravitational race, when they start attracting more and more matter into their location, uh, it becomes easier for that location to win over all the other perturbations, right? If I'm 10 times larger than you and we're both in the same environment, I'm gonna be much more successful at attracting the surrounding matter to me than you are to you. In fact, I'm gonna be more successful at attracting you to me than you are at attracting me to you. Because I have more mass and accelerations move me around less than they move you around. I have the same force, larger mass, smaller acceleration. So, um, you know, I think about these environments and I think, okay, so we get a disk and we get a central mass. Um, you know, maybe we have multiple masses in there, but let's just stick with the simple case first. And then what's going to happen? Well, The disc with these clumps of mass in there, whichever clump happens to be larger at the start or can more easily attract the surrounding matter at the start, is going to grow to a larger mass in less time than all the other ones. Uh, If there are plasmas... In this disk, because the radiation or the collisions in the disk can heat it enough so that atoms become ionized, uh, moving charged particles are great for making magnetic fields. And just as the Earth and our magnetic field can divert the solar wind away from our planet, maybe these early protoplanetary disks are good at diverting uh Things that would otherwise evaporate those gases away from them. So there aren't as many collisions. I know there are a few protoplanetary disks, like the one around, and pardon me, I I feel like a seven-year-old here, one named F.U. Orionis. Um, that we've actually observed multiple times over the span of many years, and we can actually infer the rate at which it's evaporating, and we can determine actually if it continues at this rate of evaporation, it's gonna take significantly longer than a million years for it to completely be evaporated. So, you get these clumps of mass. If there are enough heavy elements in these clumps, um, they can form rocky cores for which more and more matter can accrete around them, and then these will they will start gobbling up all of the surrounding matter at their location in the disk, and there will be gaps in the protoplanetary disks. Um, and what you're going to form is going to depend. On your radius away from the parent star, but that's not going to be the only factor. So, I think what we've learned is you can get a variety of masses of planet at a variety of distances. You can have gas giants in the inner solar system, you can have rocky planets in the outer solar system, and you can have all sorts of odd distributions of planets that look very, very different from our own solar system, as well as ones that look like our solar system. And um, I think the big thing we should learn to expect is diversity. But that still doesn't help us answer the question of, in detail, how do these planets form? And I think that's where uh, sort of the frontiers of research, including your research, are really uh, shedding a lot of light on what's going on in these systems.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for the uh, compliment. I too think that planet formation is very interesting. And just to add another layer of complexity to everything that you just said, not only can you have planets of different masses forming at different locations, but after these planets form, they can interact dynamically and you end up having the orbits shift and change over time. So just because we see a massive planet at say 0.5 AU from the star, that doesn't necessarily mean it formed there. It could have, but it's so hard to say just based on the mass of the planet and its orbital radius, and that's where the sort of work that I do comes in. So as you mentioned, I am focused on planet formation. In particular, I study the chemical composition of planet-forming disks, so I spend a lot of time looking at spectra of molecules and atoms and trying to figure out exactly what these squiggly little lines are telling us about these environments and one of the great drives right now within the field is to be able to take the information that we're starting to get from observing exoplanet atmospheres and um getting information about their composition. So say we can see spectra of water in their atmospheres, or there was a recent paper on the first detection of CO2 in a planet's atmosphere. And we're hoping that we can take that information and say, okay, well, if it has this much water and it has this much CO2, then likely this planet formed... Four AU further out than it currently is, or likely this planet formed at its current location and has not moved since it was born. Which is, I think, a lovely idea, and people get very excited about it. Um, But if you actually look at protoplanetary disks and you look at their composition, once again, we should expect diversity. And we see a large range of chemical compositions in these disks, we see uh, a large range of physical properties. So some disks are big, some disks are small, some are really dense, and some are very fluffy. I think what we really need to understand is, what is the distribution of protoplanetary disk properties and then what is the distribution of exoplanet properties and how do these two map onto each other and once we understand that then we'll finally be able to answer questions about what is the history of this exoplanet around this other star where did it come from what is underneath these layers of clouds that I'm observing
0: you know this is this is very uh this is a very challenging field of study for a lot of reasons um one of the big philosophical things that always bugs me when we study protoplanetary systems and then grown-up exoplanetary systems is Is this sort of disconnect um, between, okay, we're seeing this thing as it is when it's like a newborn baby, right? We're seeing this stellar system as it is when it's first being formed. And then we're coming back later and we're not even coming to the same system. We're looking at other systems and saying, because all we get is this cosmic snapshot, right? So we're coming back to other systems and we're saying, what do you look like now as a grown-up or an adolescent? So we're, we're seeing it in the early initial stages. We're seeing it later in a more grown-up stage. And the thing that always bothers me is when you see it in the grown-up stage, you don't get to see everything that's formed during the infant stages. You only get to see what's left. You only get to see the survivors. You don't get to see who's migrated, who's been ejected, who's been swallowed by the parent star, who's merged with another object in the solar system. In fact, I believe in our own solar system, we think that there were at least two early planet-sized objects that are no longer there. I believe the current leading picture is that there was a fifth gas giant planet that was ejected at some point, and that there was another relatively large, maybe Mars-sized object in the inner solar system that actually collided with Earth about 50 million years after planets finished forming, and that's where we think our moon came from. So this this is something that always troubles me when I think about making connections between that early protoplanetary stage and the later, now I have a grown-up stellar system phase. Um, Am I barking up the wrong tree to be worried about that, or is that just one of many trees in the forest of things to be worried about?
1: It is certainly one of many trees, but it's It's one of the bigger trees. It's the nice tall oak at the center of the forest. And I think that the way that we get around that is by studying populations. I think that we are never going to be able to, unless someone invents a time machine, know the history of a specific planet particularly a specific planet that's orbiting another star. What we can aim for, however, is being able to talk about the likelihood of this planet having had a certain history. So I'm making this up as I go, so maybe this this won't work out. But as an analogy, let's imagine that there is an adult living in a town. Um, And let's say that they live in Los Angeles. And you want to know just from looking at this adult living in Los Angeles, what their history is. You can't know for sure, but you can look at children who live in Los Angeles and live in other cities, you can look at what their similarities or differences are to this adult that's living in Los Angeles. And you can say, okay, based on the information I have about these young people living in various places, and this single adult, there is a 41% chance that this adult currently in Los Angeles was also born in Los Angeles. Um The point that I'm trying to get at is that there's always going to be some uncertainty. And we have to accept that but that doesn't mean that we'll never know anything.
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is you shouldn't be able to count on whatever general rules you wind up discovering, applying to one specific individual object, but that we should have Good reasons to be confident that the general rules we come up with are, in fact, general rules that will apply. For example, when you look at the moons of Saturn and Jupiter and Neptune, well, no, not Neptune, but if you look at the moons of Saturn and Jupiter and Uranus and not Neptune, uh, you can conclude that most of these moons formed from a circumplanetary disk that once, you know, formed around this giant planet while it was forming. Just as stars form protoplanetary disks, which fragment into planets, we think that giant planets during their formation had circumplanetary disks. And most of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus's moons arose from this. But there are exceptions. Saturn's moon, Phoebe, is a famous one. That one is clearly a captured object that likely originated in the Kuiper belt. It has a retrograde orbit. It orbits out of the plane. It's of a very different density from the other Saturnian moons. It has a different surface composition. Um, And it's also creating its own ring system as... It, the suns and solar rays and solar particles strike it uh, and sort of kicks up debris off of it because it's volatile rich. Then you come to Neptune and you say, well, Neptune is this big outlier because Neptune has a very, very poor, lunar system around it. It's dominated by this one object, Triton, that appears to be the largest object that originated in the Kuiper Belt. It was captured by Neptune. It's almost as large as Pluto and Eris combined in terms of mass. And again, it orbits the opposite direction from all the other moons. It is out of the plane. But at some point, it came in, it was captured by Neptune, and whatever Neptune's original system was, uh, is gone. Um, it was just kicked out as Triton was captured, and there are only a couple of inner moons to Triton that still persist. So I think just like for the moons in our solar system, that we have a general story but there are outliers that don't fit that story i think you're right that we'll be able to determine like okay here's how planets form here's the general rule for how they form and what types of distributions you wind up with but if we look at any one particular system particularly from afar without the kind of resolution we can get for solar system objects um there are going to be some uncertainties. There are going to be some confounding pieces of information there that, you know, we we will tr- probably draw the wrong conclusion about some percent of them, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to make up a general rule because that's going to be right most of the time.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, sweet. So let me ask you this. Um, what if I wanted to have you tell me the story where I say, okay, let's imagine we've got a clump of gas in the Orion Nebula, and it's in the process of forming planets right now, that you've got a protostar at the center, uh, that it's just a singlet system like our own solar system, and I've got this gas surrounding it likely in a sphere on the outskirts, but as we get in towards the inner regions of that cloud of gas, uh, we start to get a disk-like distribution. Now, in my naive picture, um, there are really only two lines that matter. There's a soot line where... Interior to that, and this is pretty close to the star, this is probably going to be around where Mercury is relative to our own sun. Um, Interior to that, anything that you make that we call a volatile um, is going to get evaporated away. Um, That you can't have stable things like hydrogen gas, helium gas, uh, or even uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. They'll be blasted apart. Um, And then further out from that, um, you can have many of these volatiles, but you can't have ices. You can't have water ice or dry ice, carbon dioxide ice, or nitrogen ice, those will still get evaporated. But then you keep going farther out, and you have what's called the frost line. And that's where you can have volatile ices out at that distance from this parent protostar um, and all of the places beyond that. So this is sort of the picture I have in my head, um, If that picture needs correction, feel free to correct it. But I'm curious, um, from your point of view, if you were to tell me the story of how we go from a protoplanetary system like that with a protostar at the center to a full-fledged, grown-up exoplanetary system, what would that story look like?
1: So the story would be, once upon a time there was a cloud. And this cloud started to collapse. And at the densest part of the cloud, where the center of gravity was, you formed a protostar. Now, our little collapsing cloud had not been completely still before this. It had gas and dust particles that were moving around, and there was a net spin to this cloud. So as the cloud collapsed, it started spinning faster and faster and faster, the same way as when I'm uh, playing around with my office chair and twirling around and pull my arms in, I start spinning faster. And because it couldn't get rid of this angular momentum, some of this gas and dust was spinning too fast to fall onto the protostar, so instead it formed our pancake disk. And this is the protoplanetary disk that planets will eventually emerge from. So we have our protostar, our protoplanetary disk. We have this infalling material that is enveloping the system. So let's call it an envelope. Um, Eventually this envelope is going to dissipate. It's either going to all fall onto the star and the disk or it's going to be blown away as the star uh, starts to radiate. And then we're left with a star and a disk. And the disk, of course, is going to be hotter closer to the star and cooler farther away from the star. And so indeed, there will be a soot line and then there will be frost lines. So not just one frost line, but multiple frost lines. Because it turns out that the temperature that water goes from being in a gas to a solid, because remember, we're at very low pressures here in outer space, that temperature is different than the temperature where this transition happens for dry ice, for carbon monoxide, for uh, molecular nitrogen, for methanol or methane. And so at different radii in this disk, we have places where all of the water is in the ice, but all of your carbon dioxide is in the gas. And then further out, the carbon dioxide is also in the ice, but the nitrogen is in the gas. And that is going to influence the sort of planets that are forming in your disk because they will have different amounts of solid and gaseous material available to them so uh if we look at our own solar system on earth we have these oceans that are made of water but if you look at pluto which is much farther out those oceans are made of nitrogen and that has to do with where these planets formed and what material was available to them. So there was more nitrogen available to Pluto than there was available to Earth, which formed inside of the nitrogen frost line.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, Titan would be somewhere in between because on Titan, uh, water is solid ice, nitrogen is gas, uh, but it has liquid methane on the surface. In fact, we know from the Huygens probe that it has uh, lakes and waterfalls of methane, uh, so so here in our own solar system, we have multiple examples of these different volatiles being in different phases at different distances from the sun. Right, yeah. So this seems to indicate that when I begin forming planets, at least when I begin forming planets that, um, you know, in the early stages, that some of them will only be able to accrete cores uh, solid material um, of, of rocky things, of non-volatile things. And then if I go farther out, um, I'll start to be able to accrete cores of rock and metal-like things, but also um, solid water. Uh, or ice, water ice. And then if I go farther out, I might start to incorporate solid methane or methanol. Uh, and a little interior to that, I just skipped over carbon dioxide, which is in between uh, methane and water. And then farther out, I get solid nitrogen as well. So uh, it sounds like what you're saying is you can build up different cores with different compositions at different radii from the parent star then what happens after that after i've got a sufficiently large core built up at all of these different radii uh then what starts to happen if i still have protoplanetary material left
1: right so we have somehow managed to build up these cores that is a big question how that happens or the time so that that happens but we've got them we have our cores and there is still gaseous material around these cores so these cores will start pulling in that gaseous material and accreting their atmospheres directly from the protoplanetary disk and we think that this is one way that gas giants can form um and this is also probably how the planets that we don't see in our solar system the super earths and the mini neptunes form so you'll have a planet with a solid rocky metal rich core and then a very thick atmosphere that has some metals in it but is mostly hydrogen and helium since that is the majority of the gaseous mass in the disc.
0: So this is really what you're saying, if I'm reading you correctly, this is really where the um, the end stages of the race come in, right? Once you have these cores, uh, these cores are going to try to pull in even volatile material, material that would be just uh, vo- boiled or sublimated away without having a large gravitational mass to sort of hang on to them. Uh, But you can start building them up um, as long as you can attract enough mass quickly enough and your planet's massive enough to hold on to it amidst the solar wind and radiation that's coming from it. So that's how you get rocky planets with thin atmospheres and how you get Uh, larger planetary cores that start to have large volatile atmospheres like these super earth slash mini neptune worlds and that's how you get full-fledged gas giants um like uh uranus or neptune or how you get uh really big planets like jupiter's that have uh you know, that have these large, massive cores and then can even hang on to huge quantities of the lightest gases of all, hydrogen and helium. Uh, so it seems like that's sort of the final stages of the race, except... Isn't it true that for some planets the race continues? Like if I had a a giant planet that through gravitational interactions migrated too close to its parent star – um, couldn't that parent star suddenly blow those volatile layers away and just leave an exposed planetary core? Or conversely, if I had a planet that was uh, lower in mass with only a thin atmosphere migrate to the outer solar system where there was still uh, hydrogen and helium present uh, couldn't it begin to accrue volatiles even if those volatiles wouldn't be stable on it when it first formed?
1: So the idea of the the solid cores pulling on gaseous material is certainly what um, happens for massive planets. As far as the volatile elements being stable or unstable, that doesn't really matter to a planet that's pulling things in by gravity. Um, And so the more massive molecules or elements will be easier for it to pull in. Um, And then the less massive things like hydrogen and helium will be a little bit more difficult to put it pull in, or perhaps a better thing to say is the hydrogen and the helium, it's easier for the stellar wind to strip that away than it is for the stellar wind to strip away your carbon and your oxygen atoms. But then there's the question of the terrestrial planets. So, Earth probably did not form this way. There is some question of how much of the gas was still in the protoplanetary disk at the time that Earth formed. But when you have planets like the Earth or like Mercury or Mars or Venus, why would there only be a thin amount of atmosphere? It, did it just so happen that accretion of the gas started really late and it was only able to get a little bit before the solar wind stripped the rest of the disk away? Uh, is it that these planets formed at a later stage after the disk dispersed and everything was much more rocky and then they got their atmospheres later when more volatile rich things from the outer solar system flew in and smacked into them? And those are open questions that we don't necessarily know the answers to. We do know that Earth's current atmosphere, our nice habitable one, is not the atmosphere that the planet formed with. This is our second try at having an atmosphere. But probably the habitable planets like Earth did not accrete their atmospheres directly from the gas-rich protoplanetary disk. They probably got them later either through internal processes or by having that material delivered by bodies from the outer solar system.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned internal processes because I had heard uh, from you know, various sources that uh, the atmosphere we have now is largely a result of volcanic eruptions that occurred throughout Earth's history and that this might be the case for Venus as well. Um, Our solar system as we see it uh, might be a bit unusual. I know that of the two main models for our own solar system, the Nice model and the Grand Tack model, uh, they both involve the giant planets we have today migrating significantly over time. So it's possible that The giant planets that form at one point were actually much closer to the sun and uh, might have scooped up a lot of that primitive material that existed um, before they migrated out. And that really our inner rocky planets are just formed from the leftovers of what wasn't completely cleaned out. And I'm kind of curious, you know, I guess we'll learn more as we take a better and better census of what types of planets are out there. And as we get more information about a greater diversity of protoplanetary disks. Um, But it does make me wonder, you know, how common or rare a solar system like exoplanetary system really is. How many of the stars that we see forming today are going to wind up with stellar systems like our own solar system, and how many are going to wind up with just a completely different set of distribution of planets?
1: Yeah, and going back to the uh, volcanism on Earth, you're right, our volcanically active planet that allows this interface between the atmosphere and the interior of the planet is one of the reasons that we have the atmosphere that we currently have and that we are able to not have too much carbon in there on our atmosphere, which we are currently finding out is very bad. And how common is that to have a planet where you have volcanism? Right. You need to have the right mix of elements so that you have this nice molten slushy layer underneath of a solid crust in order to have this lovely little um, sort of control switch to keep the atmosphere nice. And it's it's not clear to me how common this is and uh, even how we would necessarily find out how common this is so i was having a discussion with some colleagues at lunch recently we were talking about the the new detection of co2 in an exoplanet atmosphere um and we were speculating on what sorts of things we would really be excited to see In the future. And one thing that I would be really, really excited to see would be some sort of spectroscopic signature that indicates volcanism on an exoplanet. Because that's telling us that we have a planet that's able to self regulate a little bit. And that's amazing.
0: So if you wanted to find that, what sort of particles would you look for? Would you be able to look for ash particles in the atmosphere? Would you be able to look for sulfurous gases in the atmosphere? If if you, you know... There are a few elements that are very common in the solar system. And we think equally common throughout the universe. You know, hydrogen's the most common. Helium's the second most common. That's everywhere. That's the boring stuff. But then the interesting stuff is we have oxygen. We have carbon. We have nitrogen and silicon and sulfur and calcium and magnesium and iron. And, um, there are about, there are about, eight to ten elements that are rather abundantly found throughout the universe that have been made in stars um, that weren't made in the Big Bang like hydrogen and helium were. They can combine in all sorts of different ways, and that's why we have just the enormous diversity of molecules that we have on Earth and throughout the universe. But what sort of signatures would you be looking for in an exoatmosphere? To conclude, hey, smoking gun over here, there is volcanism happening on this planet.
1: So this is definitely not my area of expertise. We should go find a volcanologist to talk to. But um, my understanding is that volcanism on Earth helps control the amount of carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. And so perhaps one way we could do this is if we were able to get some spectroscopic signatures of some oxygen-bearing species, some nitrogen-bearing species, and some carbon-bearing species, and then knowing what the stable abundance ratios of those species should be with and without volcanism, uh, we could look at what the ratios that we actually measured were, and say, okay, well, the only way that this atmosphere can exist with this composition, as far as we know, is if there is some process going on within the planet to regulate the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, Of course, that would require us to know what the total amount of carbon in the planet would be which once again would mean that we would need to know what the composition of the material that it formed from was so we're we're back to where we were
0: (laughs) oh the fun chicken and egg problems of astrophysics at least um with a star with a parent star you can do spectroscopy on that and get an idea of its metallicity of how many heavy elements are present in the star, and then you can use that as a proxy for the planets in the solar system and what the material they at least formed out of. But that's a big inference. It's a big inference to go from the composition of the star to the composition of the material in the protoplanetary disk that the planets then went and formed out of. Um, and so I don't know how confidently you'd be able to take those steps
1: right so it is true that we can get the composition of the star and we know that the composition of the star and the bulk composition of the protoplanetary disk should be the same because they formed out of the same collapsing cloud of stuff however you'll remember those frost lines that we talked about where there'll be a certain radius in the disk where the water is frozen out But the carbon dioxide is not. And one thing that I didn't mention earlier is that the solids in the disk, once they get large enough, are actually going to start drifting inwards towards the star. And so if all of your water is solid and your water starts to drift in but your carbon does not, then you'll end up with a water-poor outer disk and a water-rich inner disk. And so planets that form at these different locations will have access to a different amount of water. And that will change what their final composition is.
0: Wow. So I'm, I've am i got this picture in my head now, just like planet Earth has different layers to it you know you have the outer core floating atop the inner core and then the mantle floating atop the outer core and then the crust floating atop the mantle and the oceans floating atop the crust and the atmosphere floating atop the uh, oceans and the continents you you have this idea of buoyancy and different types of elements, different types of materials, Uh, they float atop one another with this uh, sort of buoyancy. Now I've got the same picture, but also for the protoplanetary disk in the solar system or stellar systems in general as they form, that there's going to be uh, this elemental and molecular stratification where certain materials will Be more abundant in the inner parts of the disk and certain materials will be more abundant in the outer parts of the disks and there are going to be these transition zones and that should greatly impact the composition of the planets that form at various radii. Is that, I mean, that might be pretty complicated, but is that what we think is going on at some level?
1: It is, and it's not only what we think is going on, but we've actually been able to see this in several protoplanetary disks. So with interferometer uh, submillimeter telescopes like the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or ALMA, to save time, we are able to look at these disks in pretty Fine detail, so we can tell the difference between being at 5 AU and being at 20 AU. And if we measure the amount of uh, carbon-bearing gas at these different radii, we do find that there is a gradient in the abundance of volatile gaseous carbon as a function of radius. The annoying thing is, is that this gradient varies from disk to disk. So it's not a hard and fast rule that if you're at 5 AU, you're going to have half as much carbon than if you're at 20 AU.
0: But it does make sense that it would vary because you have different environments for these disks, different compositions for these disks, different masses for the central star or protostar, and hence different amounts of winds and radiation coming from it. Um, The environments are going to vary, and the initial, like you said, thicknesses of the disk, extent of the disk are going to vary as well. It would make sense that variety just like they say it's the spice of life is also the spice of different stellar and planetary systems that form throughout the universe
1: yeah exactly and so one of the questions that we're trying to answer right now is which of these different properties the spectral type of the central star the density of the disk matters most for determining the chemical composition gradient.
0: I mean, hopefully that's a, uh, you know, when when I think about all of the discoveries we've made about protoplanetary disks really in the last 10 or 15 years as ALMA has come online and gotten more and more powerful, um, you know, as it now I think has a full uh, array of 66 dishes that span uh, over a hundred kilometers from end to end, um, that we've really been able to just see these protoplanetary disks in detail like we never have before. I remember how groundbreaking it was when the first Hubble images of protoplanetary disks in the Orion Nebula were coming in, and they they looked like smudges that you'd get maybe like five pixels across. Here's a protoplanetary disk, and we'd all go, wow. And now you can see the gaps in the disk. From where protoplanets are forming, um, you can see um, different elemental compositions at different radii, going from like the inner few astronomical units out to dozens or even hundreds of astronomical units away, um, like the the improvement in our instrumentation has been tremendous. And as a result, we've been able to image these disks and determine their compositions better than ever before. Um, I like to think this is going to continue to be an arena where our technology advances. And as our observations improve, so will our knowledge of these systems.
1: Yeah, and I think Alma has been just absolutely fantastic for studying the the structure of the dust and for studying the uh, abundances of some of the gaseous molecules. And there's still a lot of really interesting questions that we need Alma to answer. But there are certain questions that the current version of alma cannot answer for us um so i mentioned earlier that we see this gradient in the gas phase volatile carbon and with alma we've looked at all of the gas phase volatile carbon molecules that alma really can look at in a reasonable amount of integration time. I mean, give me a 100 hours with ALMA and I'll show you some wonderful stuff, but no one wants to do that. Um, but there are other species that do not emit at the wavelengths that ALMA observes at or that, say, are in the ices instead of in the gas, and so ALMA can't see them. And for that, we need other facilities. So these can be things like JWST, which we are now starting to get uh, observations in from, or some of these things can only be observed at far infrared wavelengths, where we don't currently have um, any super powerful observatories. So um, there's actually a lot of the cold water vapor um that would be at large radii in protoplanetary discs we cannot observe right now because the strongest transitions of cold water vapor would be in the far infrared so in order to fully understand the composition of these systems we're going to need a new generation of technology um, we know how to build it we just need to find the money as always with science
0: well, let me let me ask you. I wasn't even planning on bringing this up, but um, one of the recent things that's just happened uh, was they released what they called the Astro Twenty Twenty Decadal, where um, I know you're over in Europe right now, and this is a this is a set of priorities for NASA. Um, but they said, hey, what we'd really like to do is build a new fleet of great observatories like we have james webb um we're going to have the nancy grace roman telescope and we would like to build three or four new complementary observatories we would like to build one maybe two uh large um ultraviolet optical infrared telescopes, which would be like Hubble's except super Hubble version of it, uh, that could directly image exoplanets and that could do all the things that Hubble can do except at higher resolution and with much more light gathering power uh, than Hubble could ever hope to do. They'd like to build a new X-ray observatory called Lynx, which is going to give us higher energy resolution, wavelength coverage, and sensitivity compared to any of the current or even future proposed missions like uh, Chandra or XMM-Newton or uh, Athena. Uh, But one option that they also want to build is the Origins Space Telescope, or OST, which is going to be a far-infrared observatory. This is actually going to be, I believe it's a large uh, four-meter mirror that they want to put up there. Um, It would be larger and more sensitive than uh, the Herschel mission was, than the Spitzer mission was. And it would have more wavelength coverage uh, and be able to do exactly this kind of spectroscopy that you're talking about over the relevant wavelengths. Even though James Webb is infrared, it's only capable of going out to a maximum wavelength of somewhere between 28 and 30 microns in terms of wavelength and what you want to see is somewhere in the hundreds of microns or maybe even around a thousand microns range um but origins the ost should be able to get us there um if we had that if you had that um what questions that we cannot answer today would you be able to answer in very short order with a tool like the Origin Space Telescope?
1: Oh, man. So a couple of things that we could do. We could figure out the location of the water frost line in other young stellar systems, which would be fascinating. But the, the question that I would want to answer is the very basic question that I brought up at the very beginning of our chat, which was how much stuff is in protoplanetary disks? So the majority of the mass is in H2, right? But H2 is very annoying in that it does not have a spectroscopic signature when it is cold. So we're talking temperatures of hundreds of Kelvin to tens of Kelvin, which are the temperatures of protoplanetary disks. And that means that the majority of the material in the disk we just cannot see. And so when I say that... There's, say, a carbon gradient in the gas and protoplanetary disks. The unspoken question there is relative to what? What are you measuring the amount of carbon relative to? You want to measure it relative to the amount of H2, but you can't because we can't see it. Uh, so you have to find a way around this. And We have several ways. We can look at the dust and we can say, well, there should be 100 times as much H2 as there is dust. We can look at the carbon monoxide and say there should be, let's see, 10,000 times as much H2 as there is carbon carbon monoxide. There should be 10,000 times as much H2 as carbon monoxide. But an even better idea is to use the deuterated form of HD Hydrogen deuteride, which is a, a regular hydrogen atom, and then a, a heavy hydrogen atom, which has twice the mass. And this does emit at far IR wavelengths, and we know that it we know its abundance relative to H2 really well. So if you gave me an origin space telescope, I could measure the mass of every protoplanetary disk within 200 parsecs, and I could tell you exactly how much material is available to form planets, and then we could compare this to the mass of known exoplanets, and we could say how efficient planet formation is.
0: I mean, that's pretty amazing. That won't take us all the way to the Orion Nebula, but 200 parsecs is about 700 light years. So we are definitely talking about a significant number of of protoplanetary systems that you'd be able to image and with origin space telescope would you actually be able to measure gradients within a single protoplanetary system or would you um, or would you have to just get a large sample of protoplanetary systems to to draw these conclusions
1: right so origins would not be large enough for us to resolve these protoplanetary disks and be able to see, oh, the HD emission is brighter here than it is here. Um, With high enough spectral resolution, um, we could try to determine what radius the emission is coming from, and that is because disks are spinning, rotating, of course, and they rotate with keplerian velocity just like the planets that they eventually form do which means that the gas at small radii has a higher velocity and the gas at large radii has a lower velocity so if we have high spectral resolution we know that the emission that is has a large redshift or blue shift is coming from the inner disk, and we could we could kind of figure that out Um, i should mention that The, uh, astronomy 2020 decadal ultimately decided not to recommend the full origins space telescope to be fully funded. Um, they decided to go with the optical near infrared and IR telescope. However, they did create a new class of space mission called the astrophysics probe explorer um which doesn't have quite as much money it's about only a modest one billion dollars per mission but they want to launch two of these missions in the next 10 years and one of them will be a far infrared mission
0: yeah, and look, uh, when we have nothing up there right now, this is a huge improvement. Um, and I'm still uh, bullish on the idea because of what they said in the Astro 20 decadal about uh, the technology maturation investment that that the non-number one recommended flagship missions will still have a chance. Um in the coming years um we might have to wait a little bit you know we're not going to see them in 2030 but we might see them in the uh early 2040s and you know luckily you're still young enough that you'll be around and active in the field when that happens if we're lucky enough to get it to happen there one of the other things that i was curious about you know we talked about the planets that form around stars. And we talked a little bit about one source of what are called either rogue planets or orphan planets, uh, which are planets without parent stars, which are the ones that are created in protoplanetary disks and then later ejected out of their stellar systems. Uh, But one of the things I'm really curious about, and I'm curious if you have anything to say about this, is what fraction there might be of planets out there in the universe that formed around clumps of matter in star-forming regions, for example, that never quite made it to become stars. You know, you can start with a clump of matter that grows rapidly and sucks up all the mass around it and becomes a full-fledged star, but there should be at least as many failed stars, right? Things like brown dwarfs, things like uh, Jupiter mass objects or greater um, that just never accumulate enough matter to grow and initiate fusion in their cores. But shouldn't they also develop circum, uh quasi-stellar systems, shouldn't they also develop disks, and shouldn't those disks also form clumps of matter and material? Um, Do we have any idea how many of these types of It seems wrong to call them planets, but I'll call them planets anyway. Uh, Do you have any idea how many of these types of planets might be out there and what their abundance might be relative to the planets we find orbiting around stars?
1: That's a great question. Observationally, we have no idea how many of these things there might be out there because they're not... Emitting light. They're not orbiting something that emits light. They're very hard to observe. But stars have disks around them. Massive planets have disks around them when they're forming, as we see by the Galilean moons. So you would think that something that starts to collapse and just isn't massive enough to have uh, formed a star would still have a disk around it because the collapsing material would have angular momentum and some of it wouldn't be able to fall directly onto the central mass. The question there is how massive are these discs and are the conditions in these discs sufficient for that material to coalesce into a concentrated dark planet? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I think this is something where you would have to to go to the people who do the the models of star formation and see if they could run something with sufficient resolution to look at these very low mass areas and see what happens there, um, and then maybe you could compare those to the microlensing surveys which I believe are one of the only ways that we can uh, detect planets that are not around stars and see if those two things are at all equivalent. But that's a big unknown.
0: Yeah, this is definitely one for the future science categories. The last I checked, I believe there were a grand total of four or five known rogue planets. And although microlensing is easily the most promising technique to detect more, I believe that the majority of the ones we've seen have actually come from just serendipitous infrared emission, where they happen to be close enough to see with our last generation of infrared observatories like WISE. So Yeah, there are a few of them out there, but I think you're right that we really have to go into the simulation territory because the observations we have are just not yet sufficient to get there. But I'm really curious because there could be as many planets that form via this method as there are stars, or there could be hundreds, or even I saw an estimate as high as 100,000 such planets. For each star that's formed in the Milky Way. Um, And although those numbers are truly mind boggling, uh, it's important to remember there's a big universe out there and even our galaxy is astronomically large. And we're still only seeing the brightest, most massive things that are out there. Uh, Camber, I want to thank you for what's been a fascinating and far-ranging conversation. And I'd love to give you the opportunity to share any final thoughts you might have for our listeners.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think, in the end, space is vast and so awesome and... There's always going to be new mysteries to solve. And that's why I love it. Thank you for letting me talk about something I love.
0: Well, it's been my pleasure, and I'm sure that all of our listeners are the richer for it. I'd like to thank everyone out there for tuning in to the Starts With a Bang podcast, and especially to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to give a shout-out to all of our supporters who are donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chewist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Valiguyen, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Seagreen Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amir Asasnik, Andian Wall, Benish Tech, LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilio O'Connor, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafael Wojcick, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, The Human, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres Chovanec, Arnulfo Zipetta, Benhead, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Reneke, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vandenhuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts with a Bang.